Chapter Sixteen of the White Feather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The White Feather by P. G. Wodehouse. Chapter Sixteen. Drummond goes into retirement. The return journey of a school team after a crushing defeat in a foreign match is never a very exhilarating business. Those members of the side who have not yet received their colours are wondering which of them is to be sacrificed to popular indignation and chucked. The rest, who have managed to get their caps, are feeling that even now two-thirds of the school will be saying that they are not worth a place in the third fifteen, while the captain, brooding apart, is becoming soured at the thought that posterity will forget what little good he may have done, and remember only that it was in his year that the school got so many points taken off them by so-and-so. Conversation does not ripple and sparkle during these homecomings. The Riken team made the journey in almost unbroken silence. They were all stiff and sore, and their feelings were such as to unfit them for talking to people. The school took the thing very philosophically. A bad sign. When a school is in a healthy, normal condition, it should be stirred up by a bad defeat by another school, like a disturbed wasp's nest. Riken made one or two remarks about people who could not play footer for toffee, and then let the thing drop. Sheen was too busy with his work and his boxing to have much leisure for mourning over this latest example of the present inefficiency of the school. The examination for the Gotford was to come off in two days and the inter-house boxing was fixed for the following Wednesday. In five days, therefore, he would get his chance of retrieving his lost place in the school. He was certain that he could, at any rate, make a very good show against anyone in the school, even Drummond. Joe Bevan was delighted with his progress, and quoted Shakespeare volubly in his admiration. Jack Bruce and Francis added their tribute— and the knife-and-boot boy paid him the neatest compliment of all by refusing point-blank to have any more dealings with him whatsoever. His professional duties, explained the knife-and-boot boy, did not include being punched in the high by blokes, and he did not intend to be put upon. "'You'll do all right,' said Jack Bruce, as they were motoring home, "'if they'll let you go in for it all. But how do you know they will? Haven't they chosen the men yet?' Not yet. They don't do it till the day before. But there won't be any difficulty about that. Drummond will let me have a shot if he thinks I'm good enough. Oh, you're good enough, said Bruce. And when, on Monday evening, Francis, on receipt of no fewer than four blows in a single round, a record, shook him by the hand and said that ever he happened to want a little dog that was a perfect bag of tricks, and had got a pedigree, mind you, he, Francis, would be proud to supply that animal. Sheen felt that the moment had come to approach Drummond on the subject of the house-boxing. It would be a little awkward at first, and conversation would probably run somewhat stiffly, but all would be well once he had explained himself. But things had been happening in his absence which complicated the situation. Allardyce was having tea with Drummond, who had been stopping in with a sore throat. He had come principally to make arrangements for the match between his house and Seymour's in the semi-final round of the competition. "'You're looking bad,' he said, taking a seat. "'I'm feeling bad,' said Drummond. For the past few days he had been very much out of sorts. 
he put it down to a chill caught after the Ripton match. He had never mustered up sufficient courage to sponge himself with cold water after soaking in a hot bath, and he occasionally suffered for it. "'What's up?' inquired Allardyce. "'Oh, I don't know. Sort of beastly feeling. Sore throat? Nothing much. Only it makes you feel rather rotten.' Allardyce looked interested. "'I say,' he said, "'it looks as if... I wonder. I hope you haven't.' What? Mumps. It sounds jolly like it. Mumps. Of course I've not. Why should I? Allardyce produced a letter from his pocket. I got this from Keith, the Ripton captain, this morning. You know they've had a lot of the thing there. Oh, didn't you? That was why they had such a bad team out. Bad team, murmured Drummond. Well, I mean not their best team. They had four of their men down with mumps. Here's what Keith said. Listen. Bit about hoping we got back all right, and so on, first. Then he says, here it is. Another of our fellows has got the mumps. One of the forwards, rather a long man who was good out of touch. He developed it a couple of days after the match. It's lucky that all our card games are over. We beat Johns, Oxford, last Wednesday, and that finished the card but it'll rather rot up the house-matches. We should have walked the cup, but there's no knowing what will happen now. I hope none of your lot caught the mumps from Browning during the game. It's quite likely, of course. Browning ought not to have been playing, but I had no notion that there was anything wrong with him. He never said he felt bad. <sighs> You've got it, Drummond. That's what's the matter with you. Oh, rot, said Drummond. It's only a chill. But the school-doctor, who had looked in at the house to dose a small Seamorite who had indulged too heartily in the pleasures of the table, had other views, and before lock-up Drummond was hurried off to the infirmary. Sheen went to Drummond's study after preparation had begun, and was surprised to find him out. Not being on speaking terms with a single member of the house, he was always out of date as regarded items of school news. As a rule, he had to wait until Jack Bruce told him before learning of any occurrence of interest. He had no notion that Mumps was the cause of Drummond's absence, and he sat and waited patiently for him in his study till the bell rang for prayers. The only possible explanation that occurred to him was that Drummond was in somebody else's study, and he could not put his theory to the test by going and looking. It was only when Drummond did not put in an appearance at prayers that Sheen began to suspect that something might have happened. It was maddening not to be able to make inquiries. He had almost decided to go and ask Linton, and risk whatever might be the consequences of such a step, when he remembered that the matron must know. He went to her, and was told that Drummond was in the infirmary. He could not help seeing that this made his position a great deal more difficult. In ten minutes he could have explained matters to Drummond if he had found him in his study, but it would be a more difficult task to put the thing clearly in a letter. Meanwhile, it was bedtime, and he soon found his hands too full with his dormitory to enable him to think out the phrasing of that letter. The dormitory, which was recruited entirely from the junior day-room, had heard of Drummond's departure with rejoicings. They liked Drummond, but he was a good deal too fond of the iron hand for their tastes. A night with Sheen in charge should prove 
a welcome change. A deafening uproar was going on when Sheen arrived, and as he came into the room somebody turned the gas out. He found some matches on the chest of drawers, and lit it again just in time to see a sportive youth tearing the clothes off his bed and piling them on the floor. A month before he would not have known how to grapple with such a situation, but his evenings with Joe Bevan had given him the habit of making up his mind and acting rapidly. Drummond was wont to keep a swagger-stick by his bedside for the better observance of law and order. Sheen possessed himself of this swagger-stick, and reasoned with the sportive youth. The rest of the dormitory looked on in interested silence. It was a critical moment, and on his handling of it depended Sheen's victory or defeat. If he did not keep his head, he was lost. A dormitory is merciless to a prefect whose weakness they have discovered. Sheen kept his head, in a quiet, pleasant voice, fingering the swagger-stick, as he spoke, in an absent manner, he requested his young friend to remake the bed, rapidly and completely. For the space of five minutes no sound broke the silence except the rustle of sheets and blankets. At the end of that period the bed looked as good as new. "'Thanks,' said Sheen, gratefully. "'That's very kind of you.' He turned to the rest of the dormitory. "'Don't let me detain you,' he said politely. "'Get into bed as soon as you like.' The dormitory got into bed sooner than they liked. For some reason the colossal rag they had planned had fizzled out. They were thoughtful as they crept between the sheets. Could these things be? After much deliberation Sheen sent his letter to Drummond on the following day. It was not a long letter, but it was carefully worded. It explained that he had taken up boxing of late, and ended with the request that he might be allowed to act as Drummond's understudy in the house competitions. It was late that evening when the infirmary attendant came over with the answer. Like the original letter, the answer was brief. "'Dear Sheen,' wrote Drummond, "'thanks for the offer. I am afraid I can't accept it. We must have the best man. Linton is going to box for the house in the light weights.'" End of chapter 16